This is Biosphere, a Royal Society of Biology podcast that covers the broad field of the life sciences by interviewing bioscience researchers and discussing interesting biological discoveries and science policy. Hello again, and thank you for listening to Biosphere. I'm your host, Freya, and today's topic will be genetic technologies, and I will be joined by Ali, one of the RSB's senior science policy officers. So thank you for helping me explore this theme. My pleasure. Thank you for getting me involved. So to give a brief overview of what genetic technology is, the term is given to a range of activities involving the understanding of gene expression, taking advantage of natural genetic variation, modifying genes and transferring genes to new hosts. Did you read anything interesting this week about genetic technologies, Ali? Well, yes, the story I kind of got quite interested in is an example of really cutting edge and excellent research that is taking place in the UK at the moment and here in London more specifically. So what is so special about this research? What makes this research special is that it is a first of a kind use of genetic technologies to empower the immune system of children with leukemia to fight cancer cells. And there are examples of leukemias, which are white blood cell cancers in in children that are resistant to other types of treatments uh, like chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants. This sounds like research from Great Ormond Street. Am I right? Yes, that's right. That's right. That's true. They have made headlines already in the past. Firstly, because they have been the first ones to try, I think, in the world, this new therapeutic approach called CAR T-cell therapy. And what that is, is basically they originally, in the first example of the use, is they took the children's own blood cells, and particularly they purified these T-cell lymphocytes, and they have, through genetic engineering, so the use of viral vectors and and other techniques to change the DNA of these cells, including genome editing, they have allowed the cells to express a number of proteins that then can target cancer cells. And and these T cells are killer cells. So whenever they find cells that do not belong to the body of the person, they may have the cells that are infected by viruses or cancer cells. They then uh, produce toxic compounds and they have other strategies to kill the cells. So they were successful to really engineer the patient's own cells to fight the cancer cells. T-cells are mostly used within the human body to fight foreign bodies like viruses, as you've mentioned, or bacteria. But the problem with T-cells is they don't necessarily recognize cancer cells because they recognize those cells as the non-foreign bodies. Right. Yes. Well, and also that could be one of the tricks that cancer cells evolved to do in the body of patients that can evade the attack of the killer T-cells. The way they do that is is through different mechanisms. But what has been particularly revolutionary or new in the latest approach from GOSH is that they are now developing a universal line of these CAR T-cells that could be used across patients. So in a way, trying to kind of scale up the system, because up to this point, you needed to get the cells out of the patient, purify them, send them over to a lab, maybe in the US, to get them genome added and then send back. So it was a very laborious and long process. What they're trying to do now is to find ways of making a more of a universal CAR T cells. But on top of that, they actually have used one, one of the newest techniques from genome editing called base editing. 
an idea that scientists had to change the chemical composition of one of the base pairs. So that can actually lead to a single nucleotide change. And normally this type of change is from one of the base pairs called cytosine to thymidine. So that's the kind of change you can do more often. So this group at Gosh decided to use this more controllable, let's say, genome editing tool to change some of the proteins that the T cells have from a donor. So you have a child that has leukemia, you find someone that has the right type of stem cells in their bone marrow and that can donate to treat the child. You take those cells, you base edit them, and you first make those cells invisible to other T cells. Because the problem, as we were saying, is that if, if you're treating a T cell leukemia, if you were to use regular T cells from another person, they will likely be destroyed in the process. So what you need to do is to find ways through genome editing to remove some of the antigens, so some of the proteins that these cells have. So when you give them to the, to the patient, they won't be destroyed by their own T cells or indeed by the T cells that you're using to make the product, the treatment. Yeah, to make sure that they don't get rejected from the body and exactly. Themselves. Definitely, histocompatibility is an important factor. But on top of that, there is also the issue that in the process of making them, you have to make sure that they don't destroy each other, and then they're not destroyed by the T cell of the patient. Yeah, which are also like cancer cells in this specific leukemia. So yeah, by changing the antigen, you make these T cells special, and then on top of them, you use a viral trick to express these chimeric antigen receptors, the one that define the CAR T cells, and those receptors are the ones that eventually find the tumor cells and destroy them. So it's a complex procedure, and it's a promising one. And what maybe is good to tell our, our listeners is that there is currently an ongoing trial in the UK where about 12 children from the age of 6 to 16 are being currently treated, and the researchers are going to follow how the patients fare, whether they will be able to reduce to non-detectable levels the leukemia cells, and then also whether the immune system after that will be able to recover and then allow the children to live a normal life. And so that is the goal. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting research and it sounds very promising. So I actually also read a recent paper that looked at how we can prevent tumor growth by eliminating extra chromosomes in cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And how would that work? So most people know we have 23 pairs of chromosomes, but when you have extra chromosomes, that is an anomaly known as a nuploidy. In the scientific community, it's been known for over 100 years that nearly all cancers are a nuploid. It had been observed, but no one had thought to manipulate this phenomenon until now. Researchers at Yale University decided to use the gene engineering technique CRISPR to develop a new approach to eliminate entire chromosomes from cancer cells. What happened when they did try that? When the scientists eliminated a nuploidy from the genomes of these cancer cells, it compromised the malignant potential of those cells. Malignancy often refers to the presence of cancerous cells that have the ability to spread to other sites in the body, and it's usually associated with fast, uncontrolled growth. 
but by removing the extra chromosomes, it meant that it disrupted the cancer's tumour-forming abilities. Yeah, that is a huge step forward if they can reliably target the aneuploid cells. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, more research needs to be done before this approach can be tested in a clinical trial, but the researchers aim to move this work into animal models and evaluate other aneuploidies so that they can expand their discoveries in a therapeutic direction. Well, as we've talked about a few different types of gene technology, I think it's time to introduce our guest for this episode. Dr. Kalpana Sarandranath, one of our RSB fellows, is joining us today from the University of Westminster. She is a senior life sciences lecturer and set up the Genome Engineering Laboratory at the university, which aims to offer a long-term sustainable platform for research-informed student innovations and success stories. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great opportunity to talk about our accomplishments and also discuss some exciting potential that lies around gene editing technologies. Let's start at the beginning of your career. You started off by studying your undergraduate degree in biotechnology. What drove you to take this course? To answer your question, I was fortunate to have spent my childhood in a small village tucked away in a sort of a jungle. And also, I was fortunate to be raised by parents that nurtured my you know, curiosity in the best possible ways. So as I was growing up surrounded by these diverse biomes, I always had this question. I was intrigued, in fact, by the instructions that the nature actually has to create these towering trees, colorful organisms of various sizes and shapes. So I was always intrigued by them. And in fact, that was the beginning of my journey in science. The degree, particularly in biotechnology, though in its very early days, I must say, we're talking about 23 years back in India, offered me the possibility to understand life at molecular basis. So that was exciting. I came across the advertisement about this course in a newspaper. Those days, we didn't have television at home, no phones, nothing. There was a small newspaper that arrived in our village. So I saw this tiny little advertisement about the college offering this degree. And my parents had the courage to take me 500 miles away and put me in this course. That's how my journey with biotechnology started. Subjects like plant, animal, industrial biotechnology, all these areas really excited me a lot. In fact, it fueled my ambitions further, I must say. That's very inspiring. I think, you know, moving 500 miles away is a huge thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the college, I was closer to a place called Madras. Now it's called Chennai. And I had to move 500 miles to a city called Coimbatore. And not many colleges were offering biotechnology degrees in those days. So we had to travel that far, one or two trains a day. So 4 a.m. trains and 12 hours of journey. It was exciting. Yeah. I am not an early bird, so that would have made me, you know, die inside. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about setting up the genome engineering lab at the University of Westminster. So this, this project has given students opportunities to develop important skills for research, particularly on um, genetic engineering. What was the inspiration that led you to create this lab? I formally established the laboratory in 2017, but the groundwork for this began in 2015 during my five-year maternity break. 
and I started the groundwork. I tried and tested some of the ideas while I was preparing for the launch of the laboratory. At this time, I'd not just tried and tested ideas, but also though physically away from the lab, I met people, attended scientific conferences, network. In fact, I ended up meeting the Nobel Prize winner, Jennifer Doudna herself in one of these Royal Society of Biology meetings. So I was networking continuously and I was attending conferences and updating myself. It all looked exciting, but I was doubtful whether this is all true when I came across the sudden outburst of news about gene editing technologies. So I was informing myself about the advances during the maternity break itself. There are two important reasons. Firstly, the values of University of Westminster, which prioritizes on research-led approaches for enhanced student experience, attracted me. And secondly, the robustness of the gene editing tools. Previously, genome editing techniques, they were considered as very complex. But after hearing stories of how robust and simple the technologies can be, I was encouraged, in fact, to try. With my background in molecular biology, I adopted the technology and I was encouraged to set up the laboratory. And I think it was a good decision because we have seen students in the past, including students who came as milkmaids to Britain, students who fled war, students with challenging backgrounds, all reaching greater heights. I'm talking about winning positions in University of Cambridge in Oxford. Very exciting and encouraging indeed. There are a few key research areas that you study, including looking at DNA damage and how that relates to cancer. Could you tell us a bit about the potential of genetic technologies to address unmet clinical needs, including cancer treatment? There are several. I think we, we all agree that the potential that we recognize is only as much as the tip of the iceberg. We still have to uncover much more. But there are a few areas that closely relate to what I do and what I can understand better as well. So I would like to highlight some of them. Before gene editing technologies, there was no opportunity to re-educate and engineer T-cells or your own immune cells to attack tumors uh, specifically. So now we can actually isolate the T-cells or the immune cells, let's say, from the patient, engineer them and re-educate them, sort of showing them, look, there is a cancer antigen hiding inside your body. You have to look at this particular antigen. You sort of give them more rigor. There is a method called CAR-T immunotherapy, which sort of brings together the antibody-related features and also, a, let's say, a T-cell receptor features together and sort of gives a new power to the T-cells to attack tumors more efficiently. So that's something that's very, very exciting indeed. And the second area is... Uh, the possibility to treat inherited disorders. About 50% of inherited disorders are related to point mutations, as in single base changes in the human genome. We all know that the human genome is about 3.9 billion bases long, and a single base change in an essential region can lead to devastating conditions. And with the advent of not just CRISPR-Cas9, there are methods like something called base editors, prime editors, we can actually remove these specific mutations more precisely, and that's very exciting. And for basic research laboratories like mine uh, in the world, creating disease models is an exciting opportunity. So by creating disease models, you can actually 
mimic disease-related changes in an experimental system. And it can allow us to study disease mechanisms and test potential therapies in a laboratory setup. So there are many, many but as a researcher working on disease models, I believe some of these are some exciting developments. Yeah, I mean, that sounds all very impressive. You said, oh, our basic lab. I think it sounds more impressive than that. Um, and going on from that, you have won multiple awards for representing women doing research such as the Aurora Women Leadership Award and the One Million Women in STEM Award. What do you think is the greatest challenge women who want to do scientific research face? There are several, really. I'm sure we all recognize that. What I see as one of the most important challenges for women in science is the dual burden of traditional gender roles and societal expectations, juggling the demands of research, publishing, grant applications. And for instance, in a role like mine, you have to deliver hundreds of lectures, marking hundreds of scripts in a single year, while fulfilling caregiving and household responsibilities as well. So this can be particularly challenging. And additionally, the gender bias and underrepresentation in senior leadership roles, I think it, they pose significant barriers for women in science and women's career in general. So we must promote gender equality and also promote inclusivity in scientific environments, providing mentorship, support and networking opportunities for women scientists like the Aurora program just mentioned now can help us tackle underrepresentation. In fact, it is in one of those Aurora training programs. I sort of mapped myself. There was a lot of realization as to how we should appreciate our own work and what sort of opportunities we should seek for the future. And I think implementing policies like flexible work arrangements for young mothers and family-friendly initiatives for people with caring responsibilities are also very essential. Do you think, therefore, there should be some structural changes or changes in the incentives of the academic world for promotion, for job retention that would, you know, actually make the old system better. Yeah, exactly. The structural changes that can remove these systemic barriers that prevent women from growing in their careers. So we have heard a lot about the UK government's ambitions and goals to make the UK a science and technology superpower, which is commendable. But we also see that the UK is going through changes in its identity as a nation. So for someone like you who has worked in different countries like India and Switzerland, do you think that the UK is the best country for research or do you feel there are some barriers or we're kind of losing grip with that title? The UK has a long-standing reputation for its contributions to scientific research and has been the home to many renowned universities, research institutions, and marvelous scientific inventions. It is crucial, regardless of the changes in the political scenarios, I think it is important to continue supporting research and innovation, fostering international collaborations, and investing in cutting-edge technologies to maintain and strengthen our position as a global leader in scientific endeavors. Yes, it's quite a positive outlook, I would say, and uh, and definitely more funding. That seems to be a take-home message. Yeah, I mean, looking at many other parts of the world, I think we are in a stronger position to continue leading, continue contributing to science. 
Yes, I mean, talking about leading science and discussing progress. At the beginning of the year, the third international summit on human genome editing took place in London to discuss the challenges in research and what can be done to propel it forward, both in regulation and equitable development of human genome editing technologies and therapies. What is your view about how we can develop and apply genome editing to human health in an ethical and sustainable way? The meeting was enlightening, I must say. I mean, my students still talk about it. We recently went to a couple of conferences and they said, hmm, it's not matching the Human Genome Editing mm-hmm. Congress that we, you know, we went through. So I think that's the message that I think is very important. Gene editing technologies are relatively new. Undoubtedly, we are in a period where we can do greater things, you know, which we could never imagine before. Sometimes people come up with silly questions to me as well, like, can you repair my broken nose? (laughs) I do get emails sometimes, you know, I have a broken nose and can you repair my broken nose? I think we need to be wise in terms of where and when these technologies should be applied. We agree that the technologies have the potential to stop needless human suffering. There's no doubt about it. But as most of the scientific community agrees, these development can do good, but also sadly, they can bring harm to us. So there are potential dangers and ethical concerns, including the off-targeting effects and incomplete knowledge leading to unintended consequences and also ethically unequal access, potential misuse and unintended consequences on biodiversity. We need to work together. We need concerted efforts of all the research labs of the world to verify the usefulness of this innovative technologies and quick application of any gene editing technology must be avoided. That's what I believe as a responsible scientist. As I just mentioned how the International Summit on Genome Editing impressed the students, we need more opportunities and more dialogue about the pros and cons of the technology among public policymakers, politicians, global groups, and also scientific communities. So we need to talk about the science behind it, where it is going, and inform communities to be wise about the applications of these technologies. As an educator in higher education, I would like to add, whether it's in academia, research innovation, or social activism, students demonstrate their potential to make a positive impact on the world. And they bring fresh perspectives, creative thinking, and unwavering determination, which serves as a constant reminder to us that there are no barriers to what we can achieve. So accessible genome editing or gene editing driven by student population can be a valuable avenue for ethical and sustainable development, I believe. Yeah, I think student can be used as a very sustainable driving force of various initiatives. So opening up to younger researchers, younger scientists, uh, so kind of a younger population. I wasn't at this summit, but I have followed some of the previous ones. So did it come to you as a shock, the news a few years ago, I think probably was it 2018, that a scientist pressed ahead by using the technologies on human embryos when the entire scientific community was opposed to the use of it? How did you respond to that news that someone actually went ahead and used it on on babies? It was scary to see that news as a scientist dealing with this technology. Because I believe that neither the human genome nor the the CRISPR tool or any gene editing tool have been completely understood by us. 
you know, we only control them when we construct them and when we deliver them into these cells. And the the root of this CRISPR tool, though some parts are understood, we still don't know which molecules it interacts with. We haven't really understood the tool completely yet. The technology in terms of its growth has skyrocketed. Thousands of publications, several thousands in a few years is amazing, but it's a double-edged sword and we need to be handling it very, very carefully. The tool has the potential to bypass human evolution, theoretically. However, editing the master cell, the embryo that can create a human being or any organism, any embryo editing for that matter, should be handled very, very carefully because we don't know the tool completely or the genome itself. Human genome has a lot of hidden mysteries. We know what is written in this instruction book called the human genome. We know letter by letter what's written, but we haven't learned to interpret it completely yet. Yeah, I think there's a a huge amount of responsibility. As you said, it's a double-edged sword, so it can be used for morally questionable projects like the embryos, but it can do a whole lot of good. But I think there is a, a huge amount of responsibility that needs to be taken both in an ethical sense, but also communication, as, as you said, with scientists and I think students and early career researchers is a way forward for that. And how do you see more gray areas? Like, for example, there's been quite a bit of talk recently in the media about models of human embryos that aren't quite like human embryos because they're not generated from gametes, but they are derived from stem cells from an an embryo. So would you think that using genome editing in something that is like a human embryo, but not exactly a human embryo, makes it less morally heavy to do? I think it depends on what question we are trying to answer in those systems. If that system gives us convincing answers to the question, it's okay. I'm not an embryologist, but I still have my own doubts about how close we will be in terms of mimicking a human embryo and using other types of models. That's a fair point. What kind of disease, let's say, of adult humans will we likely see the benefits coming to the clinic first? Do you think it's through the CAR T cells therapies or or maybe sickle cell anemia? I think both are raising together. Sickle cell has shown promising potential, in fact, in the trials. But the cost that is associated with these technologies is the major drawback if we can simplify some of these workflows, we might actually have positive outcomes in many, many trials. But I think CAR-Ts have been existing for a long time. It's a bit tricky to put which one, skill cell or CAR-T, both are progressing equally at this point. I'll be very interested to see the developments in treating rare diseases, inherited blindness, age-related conditions. Um, So I would like to see developments in those areas. Do you, do you then see that we need way more understanding of ways to deliver the tools? Because I suppose, you know, some of the challenges are you need to repair a tissue or you need to change a part of the body. And can you change enough cells in the body? What do you think about those challenges? Some organs are very conducive for genetic, for instance, liver. Even if you manage to edit you know, a very few percentage of the affected liver cells, liver has this amazing capability of regeneration. So once the disease is corrected, the corrected cells repopulate. And there are examples where I think tyrosinemia, the disease caused due to mutations. People with this disease cannot 
break down this amino acid tyrosine. The disease has been corrected in animal models very successfully, but the story is different in terms of other organs. Delivering the tool itself poses a lot of difficulties. In a cell culture model, some cell lines are very good. You know, for instance, the bone cancer lines, we call it U2OS. They are very good. They behave all the time in microscopic studies and all sorts of analysis we do. But some of the breast cancers are very tough to edit. We struggle. We would give electric shock to the cells. Electroporation is a way of introducing electric shock, and that creates small pores on the cell membrane, and then you slip the tool inside. So we have to resort to various methods. I always advise my students, if you can come up with innovative methods, efficient delivery of CRISPR tools inside hard-to-edit systems, you are a winner creating different media components that can keep the primary human cells, not the cancer cells we grow, the cells that we freshly take out from human body. If we can manage to grow them for a longer time, again, a student is a winner. So I always inspire, try to inspire the students by saying, come up with a new delivery tool, come up with methods of culturing primary cells of humans. And, you know, those are some of the limitations in the workflow of CRISPR technology. Do you think that um, through some kind of ingenuity, people may find ways to use CRISPR to change something in their adult tissues, maybe in, in their brain, that may lead to quite different outcomes, you know, in a way that humans would start to look a bit different from how we are now? It's not possible to edit and change the features of a fully grown adult, thankfully. We can cure disease-related changes linked to molecules. But changing the features, somebody asked me, can I grow an exoskeleton? <laughs> um, can I do that? A TV reporter asked me some time back. And can we edit hundreds of genes to change intellectual capabilities of a person? That's not possible, introducing new features. Things like intelligence are controlled by several genes and we are operated by multiple layers of networks, thankfully. So I said, there is no tool yet. And then the immediate question was, what will happen in the next 100 years? I said, I cannot predict it at this point. So we will have to wait and see. Well, we really appreciate you coming onto the podcast today. Um, we've had some very interesting discussions and you are obviously a great advocate for diversity and upskilling students, which is something we love to see. So thank you very much. Thank you both. Please do look on our website. There is a program called Gene Editors of the Future. It's an extracurricular initiative. We introduce students to various aspects of uh, genome engineering. And thank you for the opportunity. It was really a very cheerful session. for our silver lining of the week. If you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you'll know that we shed light on a news story or research study that we think is really positive against all the overwhelming news that we get bombarded with daily. So everyone knows about the advancements of artificial intelligence and how it's going to be revolutionary for so many aspects of our life. Earlier this year in Hungary, which has a robust breast cancer screening program, some hospitals have started using AI to detect signs of breast cancer and has found that early testing results show that this new technology has an impressive ability to identify these signs that can be overlooked by doctors. So what they found is that at five hospitals and clinics that perform more than 30,000 screenings a year, 
the AI tools that were rolled out starting in 2021 are now helping to check for signs of cancer that radiologists may have overlooked. So they're like really helping radiologists to get better at identifying cancer signs. Across these five sites in Hungary, 22 cases have been documented since 2021 in which the AI identified cancer missed by radiologists, with about 40 more under review. It is worth to note that Kieran Medical Technologies, who created this specific tool, said the AI worked best alongside doctors and not in a way which would mean it would replace them. Given that the National Cancer Institute has estimated that about 20% of breast cancers are missed during screening mammograms, this is really a great step forward to help people tackle this disease early on. That's it this week from me and Ali. It's been a pleasure to have you co-hosting with me. Um, So thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. And we had such a great time talking to Kalpana. It was great to hear all the research she's working on. And I think she's such an inspiration by providing students an avenue to really harness the techniques associated with genetic technologies. Make sure to tune in next week for our last episode, where we'll be discussing scientists thinking outside the box including the use of venom peptides in drug discovery. Until next time.